From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics and so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. It is Wednesday, so it is Prime Minister's Questions Day. But also in today's show, we have a special interview with Tony Blair. Lizzie Burden, you spoke to the former Prime Minister. Can you sum it up in three words for us? Don't be complacent. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, well, we'll get back to that in a moment. Of course, today's Prime Minister's Questions uh, is going to be the first since the local elections last week where we had Labour winning more than 500 seats, Conservatives uh, losing more than 1,000 seats, so a very uh, bad day for the Conservative Party anyway. We've also got a new YouGov poll that's out today as well showing that this was a polling for YouGov that was done before the local elections showing that Labour had a 17 point lead. Mm. Uh, so 43% was the preference for Labour, 26% for the Conservatives. A slight improvement for Labour, a slight uh, decrease in support yeah. for the Conservatives. Uh, so that, that was with the setup going into the local elections and we saw that borne out as well in the results of that vote. Yeah, absolutely. But of course I think you're going to see the pushback from the Conservatives. This does not prejudge a general election. There is lots of time between these local council elections. They don't directly translate. I mean, just read the piece by Ian Duncan Smith for example on that issue. Yes I think there is that to watch so the council elections that could be a battleground for discussions between the leaders. Also the arrest of protesters, the coronation of uh, King Charles uh, and again I wonder whether we'll be back to cost of living issues. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to escape them at the moment, but interesting also to see what sort of swagger Keir Starmer has after yeah. last week's <laughs> elections as well, whether or not uh, has does he think that he's doing enough to put himself on track to be the next uh, Prime Minister? That was a topic, uh, Lizzie, that you actually brought up with uh, with Tony Blair when you spoke to him. Well, look, he said, Blair said that Starmer is doing well, but he can't take anything for granted, and that's why we can expect a range of detailed policy announcements between now and the next election. But really interesting to get that insight from the man who is the most electorally successful prime minister in the UK alive. Yeah, it was so uh, interesting. Look, the other few things that I think are... um perhaps going to be uh, on the radar. It is, of course, the second reading of the Small Boats Bill yeah. and the Archbishop of Canterbury apparently is going to be speaking against the illegal migration bill in the House of Lords and it's the second reading in the Lords today. Speaking of waters, he does like to wade in. 
Indeed. Good, good match for you there. Um, Lizzie, of course, this is the battle that Rishi Sunak's government is having at the House of Lords over the uh, new immigration law. And he has warned them not to stand in the way of what he says is the will of the British people um, over their threats to block it. Of course, this is the plan that includes sending people to Rwanda who arrive in the UK illegally and banning them from ever claiming asylum or citizenship in Britain. It would also limit the ability of the European Court of Human Rights to prevent or slow the deportation of asylum seekers as well. So that legislation passed the House Commons last month and it's yeah. before the Lords today. Yeah, I mean, some of the the quotes in the newspapers around what they think um, Justin Welby is going to say, he... Ah, here we go. Let's cut into PMQs. Can here I thank is all those who took part in the coronation celebrations over the weekend? And can I also take this chance to wish all the very best to my brilliant and talented constituent, May Muller, who is representing the UK at Eurovision in Liverpool this weekend. The whole country is behind you, May. Now, Mr Speaker, this time last week, the Prime Minister had to correct the record on misleading claims he made about employment numbers. Can he provide a further update? Now he's cost a 1,000 Tory councillors their jobs. Mr. Mr. Speaker, let me pass on my best wishes to May as well for this weekend Eurovision. Uh, with regard to the local elections, Mr. Speaker, maybe I can just offer the honourable gentleman a tiny bit of advice from one of his predecessors. From one of one, one of his predecessors, one of one of his predecessors, Tony Blair, who I was reading the other day. T- what did Tony Blair? He said. He said the right honourable gentleman can be as cocky as he likes about the local elections. Come a general election, policy counts. And and we know, Mr Speaker, uh, uh, the the problem for him is he doesn't have any. The Prime Minister said he was going to lose 1,000 seats, and then he managed it. After 13 years, a Tory promise they actually haven't broken. And this is the Prime Minister who's only had to fight for two things in his life. Last year, he lost a Tory beauty contest to the member for South West Norfolk, who then lost to a lettuce. Last week, when he finally came into contact with voters, he lost everywhere. No matter who the electorate is, the Prime Minister keeps entering a two-horse race and somehow finishing third. (laughs) Given his track record, who does he think he's actually got a mandate from? Mr. Mr. Speaker, it's a bit rich to hear about mandates from the person who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, go through the list, Mr. Speaker. Nationalisations, NHS outsourcing, universal credit, and now tuition fees. He was, Mr. Speaker, he was for them all before he was against them. He's not. He's not just the softy. He's the flaky too. Well, Mr Speaker, I can understand why the Prime Minister is trying to wish away his terrible results, but peddling nonsense just doesn't work. Up and down the country, people want the government to focus on the cost of living, but he's got no answers. Is he planning to carry on as if nothing happened and ignore the message he was sent last week? Or is he going to do what a Labour government would do and announce an immediate freeze in council tax bills? 
Mr. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I know, I know he's asked his Labour councillors rightly to focus on the cost of living. Perhaps they could start with reducing council tax to the level in Conservative-run areas. But, Mr. Speaker, we're, we're getting on with halving people's energy bills, freezing fuel duty to help them with the cost of living. What is stopping him having a plan is that, unfortunately, his shadow chancellor recently said she's discovered she's got a problem, Mr. Speaker. She realised she realised that she actually is what she said. She actually has to shock horror, say where the money's going to come from. <laughs> and, and with, with, a, with, with a 90 billion pound black hole in her plans, she's got a lot of work to do. Mr. Smith, there's only one party that broke the economy, and they're sitting right there. To me, seems to me, to quote one of his more electorally successful predecessors, nothing has changed. Still blaming other people, still refusing to take the necessary action, still not listening to the country. And on council tax, it's quite simple. A Labour government would give every council the grant they need to freeze those bills, fully paid for by ending the handouts he's giving to oil and gas giants. So I ask him again. Now his plan has been utterly rejected. Why won't he do the same? Mr Speaker, just a quick quick history lesson. While he was busy busy softening sentences 13 years ago, let me just remind him what we inherited. It was the largest deficit in the G7 from Labour. Higher unemployment. The coffers were totally empty. And it didn't stop there, Mr Speaker. After that, they wanted a longer lockdown. And now, now, they won't even oppose the picketers and the protesters, Mr Speaker. Even in opposition, they're damaging the economy. He's he's just not listening, is he? Even after the entire country, Mr Speaker, from the Peak District to the Garden of England, rejected his government last week, he still thinks that protecting oil and gas profits is more important than freezing bills. I'm sure the Prime Minister must finally have met some working people in recent weeks. <laughs> Did any of them understand why he insists on protecting his precious non-DOM tax status rather than scrapping it and using the money to train thousands of doctors and nurses? Well, Mr Speaker, he said that this money would fund the NHS workforce, but that plan was actually looked at by one of his own colleagues recently. Now, now that person said that it would discourage doctors and nurses from coming here, and that there was a two billion pound there was a two billion pound shortfall in his sums. Who said that? It was Alistair Darling. He, he might remember those days. It's when Labour bankrupted the economy. I think that is the definition of nonsense. And this is the price of having a tired, worn-out government fronted by a Prime Minister who boasts he's never had a working-class friend. He's smiling his way through the cost-of-living crisis, gloating about success while waiting lists grow. He's pretending that crime, house-building, schools are all just doing fine while handing the country 24 tax rises, all with his name on them. How does he think the Tories can possibly provide the answers Britain needs when the whole country has already told him they're the problem, not the solution? 
Mr Speaker, the, the Honourable Gentleman is right. We all do say some silly things when we're younger. I was a teenager. And he'll, he'll know what I'm talking about, because I think in his 40s he was still talking about abolishing the monarchy, Mr Speaker. <laughs> But it's the, it's, the, it's the same old guff from him every week, Mr Speaker. All politics and no action. We're getting on with halving people's energy bills, freezing fuel duty, cutting the costs of coal care and boosting pay. While he's, while he's busy plotting coalitions, we're getting on and delivering for the British people. So that was the Prime Minister and the opposition leader there confronting mm. some of the perhaps issues we were expecting. Certainly Keir Starmer keen to uh, put the knife in, I think, about the Conservative losses during the local election results. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think I've rarely seen Keir Starmer look uh, so absolutely delighted. I think he had the wind in his sails, didn't he? And clearly, of course... Um, uh, why not, given that the Tories did lose a thousand Tory council seats? Uh, you know, and he tried to pin that squarely on Rishi Sunak after 13 years of Tory uh, um, of promises. Mm. You know, that was a promise that that Kiss Tama said Rishi Sunak had not broken, i.e. they had warned that there could be this big loss. He was saying, you know, that was a success, but obviously it's... Uh, desperate for the Conservatives. Yeah, Kirstama again trying to paint Rishi Sunak as pretending everything's fine, mm. out of touch with reality. He said uh, he is is running a tired, worn out government and boasts he's never had a working class friend. We've heard that before, haven't we? But I thought that the response from Sunak was pretty good, actually. In his 40s, he was still talking about abolishing the monarchy. Yes, I do think that the issue around the cost of living crisis is a weak spot, though. Uh, you could hear in the background chants of the helicopter because he used mm. uh, the prime minister used the helicopter to go quite well a relatively short distance um, in the last few days. That was reported by the newspapers. Anyway, that was one idea picked up. Then there was a, quite a bit about council tax and mm. taxation in general, along with the kind of cost of living um, issue. And I th- again, that's a kind of quite a big um, point of argument between the two sides. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Keir Starmer saying that Labour would uh, tax oil and gas companies to pay for a council tax freeze around the country as well. And then scrapping <coughs> excuse me, the non-DOM status would help to fund uh, more healthcare workers too. So uh, trying to address some of those points raised by Rishi Sunak about what he said was the, uh, the £90 billion pound hole in the Shadow Chancellor's plans for the economy. Yeah, I do think that the language also took a notch up. It does feel like perhaps, you know, one can sense that there is uh, electoral fever at some point to come, you know, a softy and a flaky was one of the accusations. Sir softy. Um, Sir flaky. Ah, yes. It's not quite Captain Hindsight, though, is it? It doesn't have the same ring. No, <laughs> no indeed. And, and Rishi Sunak being accused by Keir Starmer of smiling his way through the cost of living crisis. Yes. Perhaps to reference some of those videos we've seen so- circulating on social media of, of what look, Rishi Sunak gleefully announcing uh, policies that uh, perhaps should be done a little more somberly. Yeah, um, I think it was quite an interesting exchange. Um, But yes, I think largely based around the kind of council tax and cost of living uh, crisis and council losses for the Conservatives. I think that was. And a mention of Eurovision for those in the back. How could we forget (laughs) that? Producer James Walcock went wild. (laughs) This is Eurovision in Liverpool. You need to fill me in on this. On, on the absolute obsession because I know Stephen Carroll is rather a I, fan of you. Yeah, I'm a fan as well. No, I think it's a, it's a great spectacular that brings yeah so many people. I mean, and it's, it's in it's, 
it is the it is the most watched live television annual live television event in the world. So you know it's quite quite an incredible number of people. But look, we had the semi finals last night. It was the first night to see what the show that's being put on in Liverpool. Everyone did very well. Very good start to an exciting week for those who are fans of Eurovision. And therefore, clever signalling from Keir Starmer. Indeed. Well, it's sort of echoes of the pre-coronation wishes that we had on last week's Prime Minister's Questions Mm. as well as that, you know, they tried to find something positive to say uh, during what otherwise is a bit of a testy exchange. Yes, well, and a topic that perhaps will, you know, I suppose reach out to voters maybe. 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 If any, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's get to the, as promised, our interview with the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who says there's a risk of the City of London losing altitude due to the damage from Brexit. Lizzie, he's been talking to you about what he also, what he made of Keir Starmer's performance as Labour leader so far. Well, he's, he's done a pretty good job of, of pulling the Labour Party back from, from where it was. I mean, remember in 2019, it was just about the worst defeat in the, the Labour Party's 120-year history. So, you know, we, we've come back a long way and he's done an excellent job, I think, of leading the Labour Party. Um, but, <clears throat> of course, you, you can't be complacent about these things at all. You know, the polls may show him uh, in the lead. The local election results were pretty good, really. <clears throat> Very bad for the Conservatives. But you, you don't take anything for granted and I'm sure he won't. And what you'll find, I think, over the next few months is that the Labour Party sets out more of a policy, a detailed policy stall for government. Is Keir Starmer the natural heir to New Labour, though? Well, things have moved on, but I think in terms of, of, of is he essentially trying to fight from the centre and, and construct a modern agenda? Yeah, I think he's trying to do that. But, you know, that's always the way that you, you win, particularly if you're on the centre-left of politics. You've, you've got to have an agenda that brings people together, that gives the country a clear sense of what the future can hold and brings back some optimism. Because right now people need optimism. I mean, if you think about it, <clears throat> we've got a pretty extraordinary situation where we're taxing heavily, probably as much as we ever have, spending more than we ever have, with poor outcomes in public services. And that, that's both his, his in, in a sense, his political argument but it's also the the burden that he carries because it's going to be you know it's going to be tough and that's why we've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth short term and then look at the long-term structural reforms that are the things Britain really needs. Well the Bank of England's chief economist says that Britons just need to accept they're worse off do they? No I don't think we should ever accept that we need to be worse off but I I think on the other hand (laughs) when people are looking at the figures and saying well living standards are are falling for a significant number of people and the cost of living is really tough there's no point in criticising them for saying it the the point is to do something about it And, and I think you can divide this very clearly into two separate groups of measures I think there are short term things that we need to do uh, including fixing the, the Brexit problems, making sure, for example, we reform our planning laws and do that urgently, um, making sure we deal with the labour market shortages. Um, and then there are some longer term things, structural things that, in my view, are all around how you utilise technology, how you harness the forthcoming and, and existing technology revolution to make change. So you've got a short term and a long term, but both of them need 
a set of decisions and a plan. We mentioned about fixing the Brexit problems. JP Morgan's EMEA CEO says Brexit's cannibalised London's listing pool. Of course, Brexit's here to stay. What's the policy change that could make the most of it for the city? Well, I think tr trying to make sure that you, you get some alignment, some, some acceptance of, of you know, equivalence in financial services, it's, it's going to be difficult to do. But, you know, the fact is, if we don't deal with some of the problems that have arisen from Brexit, that the damage is continuing and it's now. And so it's not, you know, I know people don't want to go back into what has been a very divisive debate. But if you look at some of the critical sectors for the UK economy going forward, financial services is one, life sciences is another, the whole technology sector, if you like. You know, at the moment, there are problems being caused by the, the, the overhang of the Brexit difficulties. You've got to fix them. Now, my, my institute published a paper some months ago, literally setting out step by step how you do that. And then you've got to build new pillars of cooperation with Europe around energy, around defence, probably technology regulation, things where it's obvious we've got a lot in common and we'll do better if we work together. Would you advise your son to list his company in London? Well, it's, it's his decision. <laughs> and I think he's got, he's got people much better qualified to give him financial advice than me. Anyway, I suspect that's some time off. But it'd be quite a blow for a former Prime Minister's son to not choose to list here in the UK. Yeah, well, Lizzie, this is not, it's not, it's, it's not for here and now. However, the, the, the serious point is, you know, we, we, we've got to, we're in a position where if we're not careful, we're going to lose altitude, even with the city of London, which is all, and I've always said to people, no matter how much people complain about the financial service sector, it's, it's a major part of our economy. We've got to keep it strong. We've got to keep it preeminent. And that means fixing, as I say, some of the consequences of, of Brexit. And there's no, you know, okay, we know we can't reverse the decision, but it doesn't mean to say that you can't debate and discuss ways of fixing the problem. And another key stumbling block, of course, post-Brexit has been Northern Ireland. What does Rishi Sunak need to give the DUP to bring them back to power sharing? Well, I think, you know, my, my, my experience of when we would hit roadblocks in the Northern Ireland process is you just need to sit down privately, quietly, you know, not, not, not with a great fanfare of publicity and work out, work out a way through their whole set of different elements you can put into a deal, but we, we need the executive back up and running. And, you know, the, the trouble is, um, again, what's happened is that the, a lot of the bandwidth of government over these past seven years has been taken up with trying to deal with the, the aftermath of Brexit. And that's also a problem if, it, if it's distracting government the whole time from dealing with, you know, the the, the real problems that would and the problems that would exist irrespective of Brexit. So I think on Northern Ireland, I, I think, look, I'm sure the Prime Minister will try and find a way through. Uh, I think there, there is one that can be found. Um, and, you know, much as he, he did with the Northern Ireland Protocol in the end, you're just going to have a pragmatic solution. But we need it fast because we need to get the thing moving. You know, the thing, the thing that's... that's one, of, one of the biggest problems with Britain at the moment is just... The, the, the sense that we don't have that strong forward momentum behind a plan for the country's future. But, I mean, to get them round the table, to get them in the room, does it have to be a financial giveaway? Well, there's lots of different things you can do. And to be, to be absolutely frank, this is not a lot of point me speculating on it, because when I used to deal with this, you would, 
it was like a, a jigsaw with a whole lot of different elements and you've got to fit them together in a way that makes sense. But I'll leave that to him. And when Joe Biden was here for the Good Friday and Agreement anniversary, he spent more time in Ireland than he did in the UK. What's gone wrong with the special relationship? Well, the relationship between the US and the UK is very, very strong. I mean, it's, and it's always going to remain strong at an institutional level because our, our armed services cooperate strongly, our intelligence services cooperate strongly. Look, I think politically, you know, we... we you know, we, we need to find a way of, of strengthening the relationship uh, again because it's important to us. And particularly as the world goes into quite an uncertain geopolitical period with, with a, um, you know, this enormous and I, I suspect growing tension between America and China, uh, it's important that Britain keeps its, its traditional relationships strong. And, you know, the, the American relationship obviously is absolutely critical for us. And you mentioned China. How do you reconcile China's lack of democratic values with its economic power on the world stage? Well, its economic power derived from the fact that it opened up. You know, the, 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 the economic power of China came from when they changed policy under Deng Xiaoping and then they opened up and, and started to open up the, the economy. And as a result of that, you know, they had the fastest period of, of lifting people out of poverty the world has ever seen. And the Chinese economy is a huge economy today. But China, you know, China is a, by reason of its civilization, its population, its technology and its economy, it's, it's going to be a big world power. The question is how we live with that in a changing geopolitical 21st century. And my view, as I've always said to people, is you've got to be strong enough to deal with whatever comes out of China, but you should stay engaged with China. And so I don't agree with decoupling and I don't agree with the notion that you treat China like the, the, the Soviet Union because it isn't. So that was the former Prime Minister Tony Blair speaking to Lizzie Burton. Lizzie, I mean so much that you managed to cover in that interview as well. What what stood out for you among the, the all the topics that you discussed with Tony Blair? Well, apart from his advice to Keir Starmer, I did think it was interesting that he said that uh, the multiverse listing of his son Ewan Blair uh, is some way off for anyone watching out for an IPO from multiverse. He, Ewan Blair does stand to make hundreds of millions of pounds, but interesting that it's not a given that Blair thinks that he should list in the UK capital post-Brexit, although he clearly doesn't want to uh, give his advice where it isn't due. Uh, We also know that Tony Blair hasn't been uh, pro-EU, but really showing his concern for the city. uh, I think he said it potentially could lose altitude if it doesn't get a bit more attention. Yeah, and also I do think interesting that he talked about the lack of strong forward momentum for a plan for the country. I do think that that is a line as we head towards another general election that's usually important. This is a man known for his optimism, and I think that's what the country's crying out for, a positive vision for Britain. Yeah, Great interview. Uh, Really lovely to have it here on the Politics Programme. And that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock. Our audio engineer was Mufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.